The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. This morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. You can turn there, but we're not going to read through it for a couple of minutes. Um, I just want to talk a bit about relationships and our Christian life. What sanctification looks like in relationships, for relationships, uh, and then kind of look a bit generally speaking about relationships, then kind of parachute into the text of Colossians 3. And it's, it's a, a bit difficult just to jump into the middle of a book and just start teaching there uh, because our natural tendency is just to make the, the passage or the, the scripture say whatever we want it to say because we're just jumping into the middle of it. So uh, before we dive into the middle of, of Colossians, I want to give a, just a bit of history, a little broader context of why the book was written, to whom it was written to, and, and some other things like that. And then, and then dive in and see how best we can take what Paul said a couple thousand years ago and apply it to ourselves this morning. So let's start with prayer and ask for the Lord's guidance. And Lord, we thank you that we can be here this morning. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust what it says. And Lord, we thank you so much that not only do you command us to do these hard things, Lord, but you empower us to do them as well. And Lord, we're blessed to know that we don't have to work for your love, Lord. We don't have to, to, to be better people, Lord, um, but we need that heart change. And Lord, we pray this morning that if anyone is here, Lord, and they don't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, they still have that heart of stone. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their life, Lord, they would repent and, and, uh, and come to you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, uh, Lord, as we look at sanctification and relationships, Lord, we would take these things to heart, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and Lord, we can apply these things, uh, Lord, that we wouldn't be, uh, as Joe prayed, Lord, we wouldn't be people who just see it as, as something somebody else can do, uh, Lord, but it's something we can apply uh, to our own life. Lord, we thank you, we love you, in Christ's name, amen. So, I have the privilege of adding We've been going through the summer of sanctification, and uh, it's been such a blessing to go through and, and uh, not only learn what sanctification is, but uh, some various aspects of sanctification, how we apply sanctification, and what it looks like in the daily life of the believer. I've been very blessed going through each of these, and I think as we, as we look at the Bible and as we look at mainstream Christianity, sanctification is something that really isn't pondered very much. Uh, it's a very hard topic, uh, but the topic itself is where we live as believers. The topic itself has been said uh, every week, I believe, is, is we live between justification and glorification, and that happens to be within sanctification. And so it's in our best interest to learn what is sanctification and how do we apply this very broad topic to ourselves on a daily basis. I think arguably there's nothing more difficult to navigate in our own life, than our relationships with people. Uh, as I was thinking about and reading through not only Colossians, but broader into the, the New Testament, there's so much to be said about our relationships with people, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's our friends, whether it's children and parents, uh, whether it's man's relationship with men or women's relationship with other women, how it is if we work for somebody, how it is if somebody works for us, how are we supposed to be in our relationship with God? The, the Bible is just filled with exhortations 
uh, especially the New Testament, in how we are to behave in our relationships. Now, it's certainly not a, a list of do's and don'ts, and, and uh, we'll talk about that as we look at the text. But at the same time, our Christian life should have something a little bit different. You know, when we think about relationships, uh, some people love having new relationships. Some of you can't wait to meet the next person. We often say my mother-in-law, she's never met somebody or she's never met a stranger because everybody she talks to, she, everybody she meets, she just talks to and talks and talks and talks. Um, for other people, perhaps you're more, your relationships are filled up. You're not looking for any new ones. You're going to try to maintain the ones that you have. Um, if you lose a couple, you're fine with that, but you're pretty good. Um, and then there's other people who the thought of relationships sends you out into your car and home and you're done for the rest of, rest of the week. Um, but no matter what, we all, have, we all have relationships. Now, it's vital to know, it's vital to know, and, and Joe made this point last week, it's something I've really been chewing on throughout the week, is that Christian life is far more than just putting something off. You can't just cut something away. The Christian life is not only about cutting something away, but it's about adding something as well. And so as, as Paul uh, has many exhortations throughout his epistles, but he says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him use his hands for good that he may supply for those who have need. And so it's not just about not doing something, but it's about what are we doing then with the time, energy, space of, of which we've cut something out. Um, so because the, the Bible doesn't speak of the Christian doing their life on their own, all the way from Jesus choosing his 12 and ministering to the disciples and to the crowds all throughout the, the gospel messages, we read into the book of Acts, everyone was saved to have fellowship. Everyone was saved into a body of Christ. Everyone was saved into a church. When Paul went on his numerous missionary journeys, he didn't go and save somebody and then send them off and say, okay, now good luck. He saved them to be in a relationship with other believers. That's the normal Christian life, is to have fellowship and oneness and unity. The Christian should have a look about them. Just as Jesus called us to be light in the darkness, he called us to be salt of the earth. He also called us into this community. Now, often overlooked by those who are in the church, one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian is how they treat their fellow followers of Christ. Our culture puts it on the church, and oftentimes we succumb to this pressure. They say, what are you doing for the people outside of your church walls? Well, the Bible actually starts with how are you treating people inside of the church walls? Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we can't treat our own brothers and sisters properly, how can we be expected to treat those who are our enemies properly? How can we be expected to go outside of the walls of the church and be humble and submissive and servant-hearted when we can't do it with the people who God himself has brought into our life? Living under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and being obedient to Christ, we're to come alongside one another as believers. Where there's strife, we're to be peacemakers. Where there's sorrow, we're to be comforters. Where there's hatred, we're to be that embodiment of Christ's love, returning good for evil. These men and women, as you look around here this morning, in front of you and behind you, they are the household of faith that Paul is talking about in Galatians 6. 
how we treat one another in here is going to be a reflection of what God has done in our hearts. Jesus also said in John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus didn't say this broadly to all of his listeners. He said this specifically to his people as he, or after he washed their feet. It's not a general love that a Christian is to have for the world like Joe spoke about last week. It's a very specific love that we're to have for one another. And having that love for one another thus shows that we are true disciples of Christ. Now this is what Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae. Paul was in prison writing this letter roughly 60, 62 A.D. Uh, this church in, in Colossae, it's a very fascinating church, it wasn't planted by Paul. Paul had actually never been to Colossae. Uh, Paul spent some three years in Ephesus teaching, and it's, uh, it's thought that a man by the name of Epaphras, who's mentioned in the, in the book, was saved uh, as Paul was teaching in Ephesus, discipled by Paul, went back to his hometown of Colossae, and essentially started the church. There's no hard evidence, but when you kind of put the pieces together, you can come to a fairly strong conclusion that that's what happened. So, essentially, Epaphras, who started the church, a disciple by Paul, needs Paul's help. And so he goes back to Rome, or he goes to Rome, to visit Paul because Paul's in prison. Now, let me tell you about what it means to go back and visit him in prison as he was there. I explained this a bit at the men's study a couple, a couple weeks ago. But to be in prison for a Christian, to, as being a Christian, so for, Paul was in prison for being a Christian, so for Epaphras to go there and visit him and comfort him, also meant that Epaphras was admitting that he was a Christian. So if Paul was already breaking the law for being a believer, Epaphras put his own life on the line by admitting he was a believer to go and visit Paul in prison. That's the kind of fellowship and unity that we're to have, laying aside things that could happen to us in order to have that unity and that fellowship in the body. So Epaphras goes there, and he tells Paul about what's happening in the city of Colossae. The church had been around for several years at this time. It was facing a few different heresies. Maybe you've heard the term the Colossian heresy. It's a, uh, a very theological term, and it sounds really smart to mean that we don't really know what the heresy was at that time, but we want to make it sound like we did. So we call it the Colossian heresy. We know that there were a few different Jewish legalists who were there who were trying to, to get the church to, to keep various festivals, to have circumcision, to abstain from various foods, so we, knew that, we know that they were coming in. Now we also know that there were those who were looking for some sort of mystical experience. They were looking for uh, something more, some more enlightenment than what they had through reading the Word or what they had through their experience with uh, uh, maybe being discipled by Jesus or the apostles, depending on who was there at the church. And they also were worshiping angels. Now the other one we don't, know 100% about, but we also know that there were there who were telling these believers that they needed something more than what scriptures could offer. And this is kind of where you get into the Colossian heresy. So we know that they said, look, what Jesus came and said was good. He was a good man. We know that the Bible you have is a good word, but we also know that you need more knowledge. So we need to seek out this knowledge. And this later became uh, a form of Gnosticism. 
But it wasn't Gnosticism at this time. So he comes to Paul, Epaphras comes to Paul and says, look, these are the things that are going on in the church. So after the first two chapters, Paul kind of lays this theological framework against these heresies. And as he gets into chapter 3, he starts to get more into the practical side of what it looks like to be a believer in unity. Now, when false teachings come into the church and people start to put their experiences above the Word of God, there's guaranteed to be division. Because if I say, well, here's what the Word of God feels like to me, and you say, well, here's what this feels like to me, they're not going to align because they're subjective experiences. And this is what Paul was going to get at. Also, our experiences should never be put as a standard in the church. We shouldn't say, well, I know that God loves me because I felt His warm embrace during the worship service. We had these feathers come down from the ceiling, and so we know that God's presence was there. When we put our opinions and our personal likes and dislikes against the truth of the gospel, there's always going to be something to argue about, and therefore, there's always going to be division. Paul had just talked about and continues to talk about from chapter 2 into the first few verses of chapter uh, 3 about what it means to put off the old man, put on the new, and how we're going to look different. But he especially hones in on how we're going to treat one another now that we're in the body of Christ. So the first 10 verses of 3, he has a great contrast between the old and the new. The old man once walked around in darkness, the new man now being alive and walking in the light. And this morning we're going to get a little glimpse of what that looks like in the life of the church, specifically how we're sanctified for relationships and how, re how relationships sanctify us for the glory of God. And really four things in these four verses I, I hope you can walk away with. First one being our new reality. Next one is our response to that reality. Next one is learning our responsibility. And then lastly, what is the overall result? And we'll go through each of those individually. And so I want to read through these passages, or read through this passage in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. And Paul writes, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. In verse 14 he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So in verse 11, Paul gives our new reality as Christians. He takes this concept of being a new man and directly applies it to the church. This is probably one of the hardest truths that people will struggle, about, struggle with. And to be quite honest with you, it is probably one of the hot button topics of our day. If you were to simply just search and look for things like unity in the church, church division, these kind of things, there is a plethora of information out there 
to let you know how horrible the church is doing at this. It's unfortunate because the criticism that the church takes oftentimes is from the world. And we can't have the world criticizing the church because the world hasn't had their eyes open to the gospel. And so what that means is the Bible says that the worldly man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. The Bible gives directives on how the church is to interact with the world. Joe went through what that looked like last week. And the only thing that would add is what he also said is to make sure we give them the gospel. And we pray for them. And we want to see their eyes opened up to the truth. Just as the individual believer is to put off their old self, the church, Paul is talking about, is to tear down those old walls that used to be dividers in them. Living in South Africa for six years, we got to see that firsthand. For those of you who aren't familiar, they had a, a, a rule there called the apartheid, which, took, which, which was on for several decades. The whites, the blacks, and the coloreds. That's what they were all classified as, and they were separated. You couldn't go to this church if you were this color. You couldn't go to that church if you were that color. If you were part of the, the Dutch Reformed Church and you were caught giving the gospel to any African, you were automatically excommunicated from the church. Had to be that dividing line. And so that same mentality has, flown, uh, has flowed over into a lot of the churches, even in our day and age. Even if not intentionally, it's still there in the back of the mind because of 21 years ago is when it 22 years ago is when it finally ended, so it's still very fresh. But Paul is saying here, we can't have these lines of separation within the church. There's no place for racial barriers or cultural arrogance. All believers are united in Christ. The world has a system which separates people according to a myriad of different distinctions, but not so in the church of Christ. Paul lists a few things here, and we'll just go through them. But these are absolute opposites when describing those who are now united in Christ. And it's unfortunate because a lot of these really, they don't apply to us when we read through here. So we kind of skim through them, not fully realizing what Paul is saying. And so he says, first of all, to the Greeks and to the Jews. There's no distinction between Greek and Jew. What he's talking about here is that racial barriers no longer exist in the church. We don't classify a church by its race. That's bringing separation into the body of Christ. We classify a church by being the body of Christ. A local expression of the corporate body of Christ, if you want to be technical. The second one, he says, is the uncircumcised and the circumcised. This is talking about the Jew and the Gentile. These are religious barriers that they brought in. What happened was the Jew would say, look, we have to be clean. We'll come to the same church as the, as the Gentile, but we're not going to eat with the dogs. We're not going to share the same silverware as they had. We're clean. They're unclean. Paul says that's rubbish. There's no more. The barbarians and the Scythians, these were some of the most savage people that existed. Paul's talking about a cultural barrier. These cultural barriers don't exist anymore. One historian actually writes of the Scythians, the Scythians, the Scythians delight in murdering people and are little, little better than wild beasts. That's what the Greeks thought about the Scythian people. 
And now they were coming into their church. So you can imagine, you watch these, these people who they considered wild beasts savage their friends and family in a murderous rant. And now they have to sit next to them in a church service. One culture is not superior to another. Where you come from does not make you more important in the eyes of God. He then concludes with probably the largest divide of his time and perhaps one of the largest divides of our time as well as he says slave and free. Slave and free is a a direct uh, quote for the economic status of people. Economic barriers should not be existent in the church either. Aristotle said of the slave, he's nothing more than a living tool. That's how the Greeks thought of people who worked, and especially of those who were slaves. When we separate the church in accordance with the amount of money people make, what we think they're worth financially, or what they think they or what we think they give to the church in terms of finances, we've now brought major barriers into the church, and we're going directly against why Christ died in the first place. This little story was in every commentary I read, so I thought it may be important to read. Here's a bit of history showing the love between a slave and the slave owner. That unity of a slave and free man was dramatically demonstrated in the arena of Carthage in 202 AD. Perpetua, a young woman from a noble family, and Felicitas, a slave girl, both faced martyrdom because they were believers. As they faced the wild beast coming to tear them apart, they joined hands, slave woman and free woman, dying together for the love of the same Lord. It's a common story throughout church history. Being united by the power of Christ. We have no room for walls in the church that are built by man. Paul writes at the end of verse 11, if you highlight, circle, or draw in your Bible, if you don't, maybe your neighbor will do it for you. But Christ is all and in all. But Christ is all and in all. That's the point of the church. Christ is all and in all. We don't need to separate people. We don't need to come in and hope that somebody sees something about us that makes us that much better in their eyes. Christ is all that matters in the members of the community. Every barrier that existed before you were born again is now destroyed in Christ. Every believer is truly created equal in the eyes of Christ when they're born again. And now we're to look at others in that exact same way. When we bring division into the walls of our church, we're diminishing the power of the gospel message to unite people under the headship of Christ. So with this, you may be thinking in yourself, and this is a great question if you are, if the gospel breaks down all of these barriers, why does it still exist in the church today? That's the question for the ages. But it's such a simple answer. It's sin. Because sin still exists. Because we choose not to treat people as image bearers of Christ. Because we choose to want to be treated better than we treat our neighbor because of sin that comes in. That's why these barriers still exist to this day in the church. 
The unity of the body of Christ is what attracted the pagans of the first and second century. They couldn't understand how people from all these different backgrounds, culturally diverse, would come together in one meeting place on Sundays and meeting throughout the week in various homes. How could that be? And the pagans looked at that and thought, what is going on? And it attracted them to find out what was going on, thus some being born again. This is what it's meant to be free in Christ. We no longer have to worry about the things that divided us because the thing that unites us is greater than anything that could ever divide us. There are literally hundreds of things we can use to separate us. But the power of the gospel is that it can take people who are total opposites and unite them in the bond of Christ. And as the onlooking world sees that, they say, wow, what kind of power is that? Those guys used to be at odds with each other. Now the, the caveat, the asterisk next to that statement, you go down to the bottom of the page and it says, this does not mean we allow heresy into the church for the sake of unity. This does not mean that we give up our doctrinal beliefs in order to hold hands with people. It's important to remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a church of born-again believers, and he's saying, look, here's how the body of Christ needs to operate. In his writing, he is pushing out heresy, thus pushing out the heretics, the people, and he's saying, here's how the body of Christ needs to operate. We can never give up on our doctrinal beliefs and hopes and hopes that we can have unity with the people around us. It has never worked throughout church history. Never. So that's our new that's our new reality in Christ. The new reality is there's no walls which separate the church. The new reality is it's Christ is all and in all. You look around and it's brothers and sisters in Christ. So once we understand this new reality, after knowing that, there has to be a proper response. There has to be something that comes from that. Before getting into that, Paul stops for a little moment here and he gives this great encouragement in verse 12. And he says, so that those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. This is a very... Um, Usual theme for Paul, and especially throughout his letters, but in this uh, particular epistle, he's reminding them, you're chosen of God, holy and beloved, as part of our new reality as believers. He says we're chosen by God, one of the most comforting and crushing doctrines of all time. The same time we're declared unfit and unworthy of salvation, God chooses us to save, God chooses to save us within that. And this alone should cause us to praise the Lord and walk worthy. Paul then puts the whole church on the same level. Do you realize what he does here? He says, chosen of God, holy and beloved. You're all the same. Why is there divisions among you? You're all exactly the same. Continuing in verse 12, not only are they chosen, holy, beloved, these two characteristics, to be holy and beloved, we could never be unless we're born again. So you can say, great, I'm chosen, I'm holy and beloved. So is the person sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you. And we're to treat them accordingly. To be holy is set apart for God's purpose, to be different from the world, 
in our thoughts and in our practices. To be beloved is something which is absolutely amazing. Do you realize that you were an enemy of God? You were going directly against God. And now because of His amazing grace, He loves you. It's not a cold relationship that we have with ink on the paper. It's a real living God. An old woman asked Charles Spurgeon once how he could worship a God who hated Esau. And he said, ma'am, I think the most amazing thing is that God loved Jacob. You see, we're all sinners. And we expect grace and righteousness from God. So we would say, why would God hate that? But God hates sin. He can't have it in his presence. So the amazing thing is, is that God loves us at all. We're chosen. We're holy. We're loved. So now Paul says, act like it. Verse 12. Put on. There's our imperative. There's our command. Put on. A proper response to knowing who you are is then to act like it. This is a willful action on our part. So what he's saying is, here's what's been done for you. So now in turn, here's what you should be doing. It's not a legalistic approach by any stretch of the imagination. He's not talking about earning your salvation. He's not talking about getting into the good graces of God. He's saying, if this is your new reality, then you will be acting this way, period. The putting on, he talks about these virtues here, the behaviors listed are the outworking of an inward transformation. Now here's a great place where sanctification looks like. I think it's a great example. You are saved by the grace of God. Now the sanctification is a cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit. Saying, look, here's what's been done for you. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. Now you need to put these things on. Each of these characteristics mentioned here expresses himself in a relationship. A substantial measure of our Christian life and our sanctification is simply found in how we treat each other. Just going to go through these quickly. It's not, a, it's not a deep meaning. Your Bibles are fairly good at the explanation. The first one he says is the heart of compassion. Some of you may have tender mercies. Jesus came here with a heart of compassion. How many times do you read through the gospel where it says, Jesus looked at the multitudes and had compassion on them. That's the heart we're to have. Luke 6.36, therefore be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. We need to be concerned with the people instead of being indifferent about their suffering. Kindness. Kindness is what comes from a heart that's merciful. If the emotion is compassion and mercy, you're going to act in kindness. It's a person that's more concerned about their neighbor's good than their own. A kind person is someone who sees the needs of others and then desires to act upon them. Humility. In Paul's day, humility was a horrible thing. This would have been astounding to the readers. Probably astounding to many of us today, too. It's not looked on as a virtue. Power and control were looked on as virtues, not humility. If you struggle with humility, C.S. Lewis says, humility is, thinking, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not beating yourself up. It's not humility. It's selfishness and pride. 
Humility is thinking about yourself less, putting others first. Patience, gentleness. Gentleness is all about what you do with the power you have. What do you do with the power that you have? Paul says in Colossians uh, 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I love that little section of Scripture. Do you realize what Paul is saying? He's like, I'm suffering for you. It's not for me, it's for you. That's being meek. Patience is also long-suffering in some of your Bibles. Patience is the opposite of revenge. We, we have a tendency, I know in my own life, to love the patience that God shows me, but then be impatient with the people around me. We love God's patience towards us, but we oftentimes forget to give it to others. So, have our new reality, we have our proper response now by putting on that new man, and now our hearts are going to be led by a new responsibility. What that new responsibility is, you read that there in 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, as also uh, so also should you. Two big commands here. Two big responsibilities of the Christian life. These two characteristics are heavy and hard. But remember, Paul's talking to the church, those people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he's not talking to try to have them do something which is impossible, but to do something which they're able to do. He says, first of all, bear with one another and forgive one another. To bear with one another literally means to carry a burden or to simply endure. Have you ever endured with someone? You don't have to answer that. Bearing with one another. Galatians 6.2, Paul also says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your, you love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. One of the best ways to show love in the Christian community is to bear with each other. It's to realize that the people sitting around you are certainly not perfect. It's to realize that the people sitting around you certainly make mistakes, make you feel bad. They may perhaps even let you down. But how do we bear with them? It's to realize that we ourselves do the exact same thing to the people sitting around us. If we don't have the proper view of ourself, we'll never be able to have the proper view of Christian community. We all need someone to bear with us. And we all need someone to show us amazing grace. And when we have that mindset, Christian community, unity, fellowship is a natural outworking because we're walking in the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, Paul says, With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we bear one another out of Christ's command to love, it's our, out of our desire to keep the unity which is in the church. There can be no unity in the body of Christ if we're all continually looking out for our own self. Out of love and unity, we bear with those who need more help. We lay down our own rights in order that Christ may be glorified. He also says forgiving one another. 
This is always such a tall order in the Bible. It always seems to be ambiguous. Forgive one another. The underlying reason for forgiving, he actually says here though, because Christ has forgiven you. So here's what he's saying. If you are truly forgiven of Christ, and you truly understand what you've been forgiven of, you will have no problem forgiving those people who wrong you, because they'll never wrong you as much as you've wronged Christ, and you've already been forgiven tenfold of what anyone could ever do to you. So, in order to forgive people, we need to understand what we've been forgiven of. He also says in Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When we don't forgive, when we do hold that grudge, it leads to sin. And that sin, Paul actually mentions in the previous verses. To hold on to resentment in our hearts, it's just us holding on to poison. And it just tears us away physically, emotionally, spiritually. It puts a rift between us and people and between us and God. We can't forget that Christ came to die for us when we were sinners. We must not forget that even as Christians, we still sin, but even as Christians, we're still forgiven. And that's our attitude with other people. Now finally, verse 14, we see this result. In verse 14, we have our church that accepts a new reality. There's no more walls. We're not coming in looking to find the people from this culture or this background or this religious sect or whatever. We put on the new man. We have these characteristics. We're looking for people we can bear with, we can help, we can love. We're forgiving those around us. And the result is this new kind of love that you've never experienced before. It's only because the love of the Father has been poured into our hearts that we're able to love people without regards to our own self. In verse 14, Paul comes back to the main point of our Christian life, and it's love. The characteristics he listed are worthless without a foundation of love. They're not listed for us to know how to get to heaven, but they're listed for us to see how we behave as believers. No more separation, no more putting yourself first, no more thinking highly of yourself, but looking onto others. How can you come alongside one another and help? Love is, the, love is the only glue which produces unity within the church. Paul says in Romans 13.10, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If you can't have mercy with somebody, if you can't be patient with them, you can't show them love. Here's the catch. If you try to produce these characteristics that Paul's gone through without love, you're going to be practicing legalism. But when they flow from love, that's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love is required as we do anything for God. When our hearts are in the right place, the works of God flow supernaturally natural. Love brings freedom to our lives. We don't have to try and get people back when they sin against us. We don't have to try and stick up for ourselves when we're wrong. We don't have to worry that someone else is going to get what we deserve. Because we have a proper view of ourselves and a proper view of Christ, we know what we already deserve and we know that we're blessed and we know that Christ is going to take care of us. We can simply allow the Lord to fight on our behalf as we're busy serving Him and loving the people in His church. 
Now this section that Paul has of Scripture is much larger. It's usually about three weeks, four weeks to actually go through the whole thing. So I want to skip ahead just a little bit. And gives us, Paul gives us the key to what fuels this sanctified view of relationships. If you look at verse 16, this is another one of those verses. If somebody's sitting next to you, you don't know, it's best to write in their Bibles. So you could say, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see what he says there in verse 16? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. How do you have unity within the church? How do you have love as a believer? How do you put on this new man? It's only by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever the devotional time, your reading time, your fellowship time, all of those things, you have to get the word of Christ in you. Otherwise, the characteristics of Christ can't come out of you. Paul's writing to this church that's in the midst of experiencing heresy, disunity, people coming in and pushing their own agendas, trying to get what they want. And where does Paul point him back to? Read the Word of God. He doesn't give them a, here's six steps to the best unity in the church. Follow these ten things, five reasons why to love your brother. He says, here, read the Word of God. Get over it. Figure out who you are. Figure out who Christ is and then act accordingly. Now what can we draw about sanctification from these verses in closing? First of all, we need to see the church as one body unified under the lordship of Christ. The church is one body unified under the lordship of Christ. The gospel breaks down these barriers. We can't see people in superficial ways. God doesn't see them that way. There's not various compartments in heaven for all the different ways that we break people down. Secondly, our responsibility is to bear with and forgive one another. When we fully realize what Christ has done for us, this becomes a task that's filled with love and joy because we know Christ bears with us. We know that Christ has forgiven us. And so all we can do to walk worthy is to reciprocate that to the people that are around us. And then lastly, love must govern our thoughts and actions. I want to encourage you throughout the week as you're making decisions, interacting with people, whether it be at your job, your family, because remember if you're married, your husband and your wife, they're also chosen, holy, and beloved. So perhaps before making these decisions, we take a moment and we let love govern our actions and our thoughts. We're sanctified by our relationships with others as we learn to look out for one another, and we're sanctified for relationships with others as we grow in Christ-likeness. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that, Lord, you not only are such a blessing to us, you bless us. Lord, you give us such wonderful gifts. Uh, Lord, I pray that this week we would have the opportunity to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill our flesh, Lord, but that we would just show love, kindness, gentleness, Lord, our hearts would be at ease with you and that we bear with one another, forgiving one another. Lord, if any of us have these feelings in us now that, Lord, are, are, we're not forgiving people, I pray, Lord, for the sake of our relationship with you and for them, I pray that we would seek to forgive them, love them, and show them that same grace that you've shown us. Lord, we love you, we praise you. 
We ask you bless our week in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.